When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Well, here he is with all of his radiant glory. We're running out of chairs to seat all of his entourage that follows him now. Dr. History, good morning. Well, you know, they're out in the uh, Mercedes and the... Uh, and the BMWs. And the BMWs. Deanne has to take them out lemonade. That's part of the contract and <laughs> That's everything. Right. Yeah. That's right. What do we got for today? Who do you got to thank today? Uh, I want to thank the Schnitzel Meister. Meister. Wait, wait a minute, please. <laughs> schnitzel. You know, there's been a lot of occasions that we could have got kicked off the air for wrong <laughs> things, but now be real careful in how you say this. Well, he sent me a picture of a Hawken rifle that he shoots. Have and- you got it with you? No, I don't. Oh. Uh, and also, uh, this book that you can't hardly see over, Zeb. All I see is the top of your gray head. <laughs> this was given to me by Fred Spence, who's one of our uh, faithful listeners oh. lives over here. Okay. So, yeah, I appreciate the, the help from some of our listeners. Now, Zeb, you have asked me time and time again to talk about this area. Yeah. So today I'm going to talk about the Snake River area, the Snake River Plain. And uh, going way back in the beginning of the Snake River Plain. Make sure you push that mic just a touch closer. How's that? That's better. Okay. So, you know, when you think about it from the western foot of the Grand Tetons to the eastern base of the Blue Mountains, the Snake River flows in kind of a gentle arc through this basin 60 miles wide, 300 miles long. Wagon trains bound for Oregon usually struck uh, the Snake River near Fort Hall uh, around the 1st of August. And it was hot, it was dusty, drought was at its worst by then, things were really getting dry. What's the origination point of the Snake River exactly? Well, if you go clear up to Jackson Lake, Jackson Lake. up that direction, and then up to Henry's Lake uh-huh. and Island Park, up okay. that way, uh-huh. yeah. So, but uh, the travelers uh, had to spend the better part of a miserable, tedious, energy-depleting month making the crossing. It took a month to go across this whole valley, Zeb. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, and you think about this, it appeared to be kind of a barren, worthless country. Little rain, uh, the powder from the dust in the hooves and the wheels and the eyes and the ears, the mouth, the lungs. I mean, just like, like flour, you know. Yeah. But by August, most of the game had fled to higher elevations, and time was too precious to send out hunting parties. And they ate uh, one meat, and that was buffalo jerky or dried salmon or a recently deceased, worn-out, tough old, juiceless oxen, which may not have been very uh, tasty. You're not a very good advertisement for a restaurant. (laughs) I'm not. If they advertise oxen, don't stop. (laughs) But the grass for the livestock was scarce and tinder dry. Sharp lava rocks slashed the feet of the draft animals, made the wagons torture to ride in, and quickly destroyed boot leather. Milk cows went dry, or feeding on the bitter sage gave milk that was unfit for children to drink. 
got to ask you, did they send outriders ahead most of the time to find grazing? The, yes, they did, because the way, the Oregon Trail, a lot of times people think it's just this one path. Mm-hmm. No, it spread as far as a mile each yeah. side yeah. to try to find water and grass. So you didn't want to hit this area during August, did you? Which is when you did, because yeah, yeah that's when it was the driest. Yeah. And here's another thing you're going to find surprising, Zeb, but there was occasional wind. Okay, well, imagine that. <laughs> Searing hot wind across yeah. Idaho. Yeah. Uh, I know that surprises you. but yeah. Now, usually immigrant women rode in wagons, but Eliza Spaulding and Narcissa Whitman, the first white females to cross the continent, rode side saddle in long skirts on sometimes oh. fairly ornery horses. Now, just west of Fort Hall, on August 6, 1836, Eliza Spaulding records in her diary, Quote, yesterday, my horse became unmanageable in consequence of stepping into a hornet's nest. I was thrown, and notwithstanding, my foot remained a moment in the stirrup, and my body dragged some distance. I received no serious injury. Wait a minute. (laughs) The hornet's nest? Yeah. I've done that, Zeb. I have been there, and there is nothing worse. (laughs) Those horses go crazy. And so do I. Yeah. So on another occasion, Eliza Spaulding, she was kind of ill and feeble, but she was tough. Uh, She mentions being thrown from a hurt horse without injury, attributing her good fortune to the same source that had improved her health on a diet of dry buffalo meat, though she says it tasted, quote, very miserable. (laughs) And then she says... Says, quote, the hand of God has been conspicuous in preserving my life thus far on this adventurous journey. And she wrote, quote, surely the Lord is my shepherd and I shall have nothing to fear if I will but repose my whole trust in him. And when describing a day's long ride near Fort Hall on August 2nd, Narcissa Whitman uh, resorted to a paraphrase in the Old Testament that said, the heavens over us were brass and the earth iron under our feet. Mm. They were really eloquent in their speech. They really were. Yeah. yeah. Pretty amazing. Now, the four-wheeled covered uh, vehicle owned by Spalding was converted by Whitman into a two-wheeled cart at Fort Hall, and it was finally abandoned up at Fort Boise in 1836 and was not a big Conestoga prairie schooner like you'd see on the later Oregon Trail. Really? It was a light vehicle called a Dearborn, and whose eventual fate and final resting place, we don't know where it finally ended up. But the fact that it had made tracks into the far west gave following travelers the idea that wheeled vehicles could get through to the Columbia. So, so it, that was the first. Was this a handcart? No. No, it was a, started out as a wagon, but as it got torn apart and, and you know, if they finally just made it a two-wheeled cart. Oh. But it only made it as far as uh, Fort Boise. Pulled by the oxen. Uh, yeah, right? or, or mules okay. or whatever it is they had. You know, they must not have had hardly anything as far as clothes or right. I mean, uh, how much cooking could you pots put? or anything. What could you put in there? Right. I mean, not much more than a handcart. 
Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, in 1840, a few years later, a small missionary party led by Harvey Clark appeared at the American Fur Company rendezvous with three farm wagons. He had a guide by the name of Robert Newell. Now, the group managed to drive the wagons onto Fort Hall. By then, their horses were tired out, the wagons were battered, and the missionaries were ready to accept the advice of the Hudson's Bay Company employees that it would just be a real dumb thing to take these wagons any further. Now, I'm lost where you are right now. Okay, we're by Fort Hall. You're over by Fort Hall. Uh, and this is coming a new group. From, coming from what from area? From the east. Yeah. Uh, they, Up from Salt Lake? No, uh, probably from Independence through Wyoming in that direction. Kind of where the Oregon Trail really uh, came through uh, eventually. So this missionary company, uh, led by this Harvey Clark, and they had a guide, named, uh, his name was Newell. Anyway, they decided uh, by the time they got... Uh, uh, to Fort Hall, that the horses were tired. Uh, they gave Newell the the wagons in payment for his services. The Clark party traded their tired-out horses for fat ones and proceeded uh, to the Columbia by pack train. And Newell uh, remained at Fort Hall for a month or so, so he stopped at Fort Hall. What was at Fort Hall at that time? I mean, where where are you talking? Right where the reservation headquarters Pretty much, is? Yeah, so it would be north and I think uh, north and a little bit west of Pocatello. Is there any remnant of no. the original fort there? As far as I know, there's nothing left there. Okay. Uh, as far as I know, so Newell, uh, the guide, he said, at the time I took the wagons, I had no idea of undertaking to bring them into this country. Uh, the American Fur Company had abandoned the country for good. I had concluded to hitch up and try the much-dreaded job of bringing a wagon to Oregon. So Newell, this guy, decided, I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to try to take some wagons all the way to Oregon. Yeah. Okay, so traveling with him were his longtime friends, a guy named Joe Meek. You've heard of him, haven't you, Zeb? I have, uh, yeah, but where? A, a trapper. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. And another guy named William Craig. Now, these two guys were quitting the trapping business. And details of this first wagon train journey across the Snake River country are kind of sketchy. So this was the first wagon train to come across right through where we're at here. Ford Hall, right through this area. Towards Boise, okay. yeah. So we know that the party reached Fort Boise. And we know that during this brief stop there, the Hudson's Bay Company... Uh, uh, a guy by the, a guy in charge of that his name was Francis Payette, and this was run by the British. Okay, now keep in mind, Zeb, uh, there was not a lot of really, really good feelings between the British and the Americans. No, and what year was this? This would have been 1840. Okay. So, uh, this Francis Payette, the British guy, made three mistakes. First, he invited Robert Newell to be his guest in quarters within the fort, while Joe Meek and William Craig were left to camp outside. Hmm. This was not a good thing. To not do. a good way. Second, to he sent out a company servant with fillets of sturgeon for the two ex-trappers, which they felt insulted and said, "No, we don't want that." Third, he told the three mountain men that taking wagons across the Blue Mountains was impossible, and his advice was to leave the wagons behind. Now, he, here you got three men, Zeb. The guide, Robert Newell, who was level-headed, Joe Meek, who was bull-headed, and William Craig, who was red-headed. 
Hmm. Sounds like the Three Stooges. <laughs> An interesting combination. Now, being Americans, uh, they would take a dare. A man could swallow an insult from a Britisher, but accept advice? No. Never. 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 These wagons would cross the blues if they had to be carried on three broad backs. Mm-hmm. So, first, they floated across the snake. They tugged. They pushed it up. Pushed up. Where did they float across the snake? I'm not sure. Somewhere Would it be Boise. down there? Oh, it's you're over at Boise now. Yeah, over towards okay, probably, I'm, I'm sorry. probably the other side of Boise somewhere. Okay, yeah. I thought maybe you were still coming down through American nope. Falls uh, uh, in that area. No, so we're even up uh, past Boise, okay. getting close to, close to Oregon. Okay. So they floated, uh, got across, then they pushed and shoved and uh, got over the Powder River, the Grand Ronde. The, they had to chop down trees. To make roads, they pl- passed. We're places. talking about some pretty tough going oh, yeah. through La Grande and all oh, that yeah. area. Dead Man's Pass, yeah. a place called Immigrant Hill, yeah. uh, flowing to the Umatilla. Anyway, somewhere along the, there, they lost their beds, but they pulled to a stop in the yard at the Whitman Mission. Their wheels and running gear were intact. For the first time, it could be said that wheeled vehicles had crossed the continent to the Columbia River watershed. And so they are where? At what point right uh, there? Up in where the Whitman's Mission is. which I'm is not the, sure where that is. Uh, it's uh, kind of in the south. Eastern part of Washington, as I recall, I should have looked that up. Is on that the map. Up by the Tri Cities? I think so. I uh, maybe one of our listeners can okay. help us out All on right. that, but I, I believe it's right in there okay. somewhere. So anyway, about this time, twelve-year-old uh, nephew per- Perrin with Doctor Marcus Whitman went back east, back home, and during previous years, annual migrations to the far west had been small, consistent mostly of reinforcements for the missions, like fourteen people in eighteen thirty-nine, the Clark Party. That that I just mentioned, their three wagons and six people. In 1840, 54 people. In 1841, 112. Uh, so it was just starting to get people heading this direction. Now that they knew a wagon could make it into Oregon. So 120 wagons, over 1,000 men, women, and children, and 5,000 oxen, horses, and cattle were getting ready to move west. And so Dr. Whitman was back there. So the leaders of the migration, they found out about Dr. Whitman. He was well known. And his appearance at this time was placed as a good fortune. And they were eager to ask him a lot of questions. Was he returning to his mission statement or station? Uh, could wagons get through to the Columbia? Would he travel with them and give them the benefit of his medical services and advice? And to all this, he said, yeah, I'll help you out. Did they, where were they at this point, past Pendleton? uh, Well, now, these these people are still back east. Okay, okay. but uh, did they get to Pendleton off, like, Um, Cabbage Hill and all that type of thing? I don't know that. They they made it into the Columbia Basin. So to say they got clear to, uh, like, where Portland is now, I don't think they had gone that far yet. Okay, I see. But uh, eventually, of course, they did make roads and stuff to get... Uh, Actually, wasn't the first uh, stopping off point Oregon City, which is about uh, 40 miles south of Portland? Um, 
I can't say that for sure. I, I do know that there was a guy that made a road right next to the Columbia, and he charged people to go along there uh, so they wouldn't have to try to portage around some I of those see. rapids. I see. So. So, anyway, there's many accounts have been published regarding the migration, its trials, its triumphs, and Whitman neither claimed nor should be given credit for directly inspiring it, but his services were invaluable. Can I you mean, imagine the work they had to do? Oh. To cut those trees and, and make a trailway, if you will? If, if you, anybody that's traveled through over the Blue Mountains. Oh, yeah. I mean, that forest is thick, it's rough. Now, I got to ask you, is that the original site, if you will, of where now the interstate is? I don't know that. It's got to be pretty close. I, I would think so, because the interstate should go as close as it could to the Oregon Trail. Okay. Or to the, yeah, to the trail. So, anyway. His advice, Whitman's advice, was, uh, um, he said, travel, travel, travel. Nothing else will take you to the end of your journey. Nothing is wise that does not help you along. Nothing is good for you that causes a moment's delay. Mm-hmm. For example, the Donner Party. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, he wrote travel vouchers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, anyway, the years of the first wave of immigration to Oregon extended from 1843 through 1859, and we're not really sure how many people went. They figure in 1844 about 1,400, 1845 about 3,000, by 1849 25,000, 1852 23,000, 1853 maybe 15,000. So there was, you know, there was a pretty and, good. And you never mentioned whether they had any conflagration with the Indian tribes. Well, um, they did somewhat, but not that bad in the beginning. I see. Uh, because. You know, and actually, I'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, so far as the Snake River country was concerned, uh, the passing through year after year of all these wagons, people, and livestock, it uh, brought slow but important changes to this desert region. The Indians at first were curious. They were friendly. They were eager to trade dried salmon for trinkets and cast off clothing. But they did grow a little hostile as they saw how badly the whites slaughtered the game and how ruthlessly the draft animals and and the livestock destroyed the grass that was customarily saved to nourish their own horses during the winter. You know, they would come down into this area, you know, the Hagerman Valley and places during the winter for their their animals. So, anyway, in this low rainfall region, the damage done by the wheels, the hooves, the grazing animals at a time of year when wild game and Indian horses ordinarily let the basin lands rest, you know, it was it was bad. So now the fur trade was kind of getting bad, and the Hudson's Bay Company posts at Fort Boise and Fort Hall were kind of unprofitable by now. They continued to be maintained kind of as tokens of occupation and future bargaining points, and the British treated the immigrants pretty good, and they were polite, but at both posts, the traveler could buy a blanket for a few pounds of flour or a few pounds of flour at what he regarded as pretty exorbitant prices. In a pinch, he could swap six worn-out oxen for four healthy ones. A stranded immigrant would have to be given food and shelter all winter, so they wanted them to just keep going. If they made the trails, they being the three gentlemen you talked about earlier, Uh how did the goods and services get to, like, Fort Boise before they had the trails? Okay, so that was the military. Ah. So they were taking goods and stuff out there uh, beforehand. I was wondering if they were taking it by ship over to the West Coast. Um, 
As far as I know, not yet. Okay. Not, not yet. Okay. So, but uh, at Fort Hall, they also got a lot of really good free advice, free of charge. Oh, <laughs> Don't go. <laughs> Don't go. Uh, but, you know, that good advice invariably was to go to California instead of Oregon. And some 60 miles west of Fort Hall is where the trail fort with the Oregon-bound trains continuing along the Snake River. Right. And along the left bank, the south side of the Snake, while the wagons headed for California turned south and went up through Raft River through the city of Rock. Right. And... I've told the story before, but I'm going to tell it again. Real quick, I've got two minutes left. One story. (laughs) There was a family that couldn't decide. You know, you're coming across with all these people you've been with for three months. Yeah. And you become friends and family. Or else Or maybe not. So there's one family, they couldn't decide whether to keep going to Oregon or turn left and go to California. So before they got to the cutoff, they turned the oxen loose and just let them decide. And when they got to the split, the oxen turned left and they went to California. No kidding. And I always wondered whatever happened to those people. Yeah. So interesting, but uh, and I think we might continue this, Zeb, because I still have a little more. To I'd go. like to know more about the original Fort Hall. I'd like to know more about the original Fort Boise. I'd like to know more about: Are there any existing remnants of the fort at all yeah. uh, in either location? I, and maybe Fort Boise. I would need to research that. I hate to admit, as many times as I've been to Boise, I don't know if there's anything left. Do you there. know the exact location? I don't. Up there? I don't either. And Fort Hall, I there again, I've traveled through there lots of times, but I don't think there's anything left. I road think, trip. Yeah. I think they just know about where it was. We need to go on a road trip. <laughs> we do. All right. I think we'll continue this. because I, I hope so. Y- you wanted to know more about the Snake River Plains. I do, Plains. because we live in one of the most historical areas in the United States, and we haven't paid it that much attention. There are more uh, immigrant trails in this county, or in this area, than any other area across the United States. I didn't States. know that. Yeah. There Hutch Pest cut it off. The, the, uh, there's different cutoffs that people yeah. took. i got to run. Yep. Thank you. You bet. God bless you. You made it through the whole program. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it at that. All right, good. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.